0: Well, a very happy Christmas and New Year to you all. I think I can just about get away with saying happy Christmas still, can't I? We're still technically in the Christmas season, as far as the church is concerned, at least. And I wonder if any of you went to visit family or friends over the Christmas period? I personally stayed put in Claygate, But there's probably a number of us who did travel a fair few miles over the past week, although I'm wondering whether those who had the longest journeys haven't in fact made it back to Claygate yet and so aren't here this morning. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reflecting on some of the longest journeys that I've made in my life. One that stands out was a trip to Australia. That was a really long journey by plane. Back in the summer, Mike and I went to Cornwall for a couple of weeks. That was a really long journey by car. I mean, have you driven down the A303? It goes on and on and on for miles. And Mike and I enjoy walking as well. It may not be that long to some of you, but for us, five miles is a really, really long walk. The journeys are prompted by a variety of different reasons. We travelled to Australia to meet up with family and friends travel to a holiday destination, that was Cornwall, or simply traveling for recreation to enjoy the scenery, that was the long walk. Others may perhaps travel for work or for many other different reasons. Well, in our Bible reading today, we heard about another long journey, as the Magi followed the star to find Jesus and worship him. We know the carol, don't we? We're not singing it this morning, but it goes something a bit like this. I won't sing it to you because I've got a cold. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Well, before we look at our Bible passage in a bit more detail, I just need to debunk a couple of myths about the Magi. Sorry if this is going to upset anyone. Firstly, firstly, Nowhere in the Bible does it actually say they were kings. The consensus among scholars is that they were magicians or astrologers who were known for their wisdom. They came from a country in the east, and they were not, therefore, part of the Jewish people. They had travelled about 800 miles. Now, that is a really long journey, particularly if you're making it on camel. And it would have taken them probably about 40 days to get to Jerusalem. And there's some debate about when they made the journey as well. It was at least a few months and possibly as much as two years after the birth of Jesus. And we're also never actually told that there were three of them. Church tradition has led to that assumption because they did bring three gifts. We know that and we'll come back to the gifts a bit later. But we don't actually know how many of them there were. But in terms of the carol, we three kings of Orient are doesn't quite work, as we several Magi of Orient are, does it? So we'll leave the carol as it is, but I just need you to be aware that it's not actually all that accurate. So now we've got that out of the way, here is the key question that I want us to think about this morning. What prompted the Magi to make this really long journey? And why were they the only ones to do so? because there's two other characters in our story as well. There's King Herod, and there are the Jewish chief priests and teachers. And neither of them shows any signs of setting off on a long journey to find and worship the infant Jesus. So I'm going to come back to the Magi a little bit later on. I want to start by looking briefly at these other two characters and what's going on with them. So firstly, Herod the Great. He ruled Israel between the years of 37 and 4 BC. He wasn't a Jew. He'd been appointed king by the Romans. And to be honest, his grip on power was a bit shaky. He was known as a great builder. He oversaw the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But despite this, he was an unpopular king. He had a reputation for being ruthless and merciless. And when the Magi arrive, claiming to have news of a new king of the Jews, Herod feels threatened and insecure. He sneakily tries to use the Magi for his own ends, asking them to report back so that he too can worship. But of course, this is merely a front for a much more sinister motive. We see later in the chapter how Herod's fear and insecurity spills over into the murder of all the male babies and infants in Bethlehem when he realises he has been outwitted by the Magi. Herod was motivated by a desire to cling to his throne and his crown at all costs, even if this meant rejecting the one with the true claim to the title king of the Jews, even if it meant manipulating others, even if it meant committing murder along the way. As I was putting this sermon together, I was considering whether there are ways in which we see these same motivations and attitudes at play in our own world today. I hesitate to suggest any specific examples. And actually, I don't think that naming names is really the point anyway. Because I'd like to encourage us to look a bit closer to home inside our own hearts, and consider for ourselves, who is on the throne of our lives? Is the crown on our own head? Do we run life our way, focusing on our own needs and priorities, and perhaps also those of our family and those close to us? Do we shape our life around our agenda, perhaps fitting God in on a Sunday morning and into the occasional gap here and there? but nothing much more than that. Or is Christ on the throne so that we live under his lordship, with his call to show love and justice to all, not just those closest to us? Have we handed him the crown so that life is shaped around his agenda, not our own? It can be scary to step off the throne ourselves And hand it to Jesus. But he is the king of love who is completely trustworthy and only wants what is best for us. If you had to pick a theme song for your life, and I need to say this is based on the words alone, not the music, would you pick Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way or Kanye West's Jesus? is king. Who is king of your life? Let's move on now and consider our next set of characters, the Jewish chief priests and teachers of the law. They were the religious experts. They had no problem answering Herod when he asked them to tell him what the scripture said about the birth of the Christ. They went straight to the book of Micah. Who prophesied that Bethlehem was the place where the promised king and the line of David would be born? They had these amazing prophecies at their fingertips, literally. But they were indifferent to the implication of the knowledge they had. I just find it so sad that these expert teachers knew their Old Testament so well that they could quote chapter and verse about the coming of the Messiah. Yet they were left unmoved by the arrival of the Magi, claiming that the prophecy had been fulfilled. Jerusalem was a mere six miles from Bethlehem, no distance at all, a bit like us popping to Isha to pick something up from the shops. A trivial distance in comparison to the 800 miles that the Magi had travelled. Yet the knowledge that these priests and teachers had it stayed firmly in their heads and didn't make any difference at a heart level. The apathy that we see here hardens into outright antagonism as the gospel proceeds. And these same Jewish priests and teachers are key players in the growing opposition to Jesus, which ultimately contributes, at least at a human level, to his death on the cross. Many of us here this morning may have been coming to church for many years. And we may know quite a bit about the Bible and the story of Jesus. If that's you, then great, it's good to have that knowledge. And if it's not, then don't worry, please keep coming, keep learning more. But whether we know a lot or a little, the most important thing is not to lock that knowledge away in our heads but to allow it to percolate down into our heart. and then out into our hands and feet, our words and deeds, too. The English language is quite limited in that we have only one word for knowing, but in French, there are two. In French, savoir is the word for knowing facts and information, but connaître is the word you use to describe how you know a friend. That's the key difference. To know about Jesus only in a savoir sense will leave us with the Jewish priests and teachers sitting on the sidelines while others encounter Jesus. But if that knowledge reaches our hearts, we can get to know Jesus personally, to connaître him, getting to know him as our friend, our saviour, The Good Shepherd who is with us day by day in every part of our lives. And if we truly know him in this way, he dwells within us by the Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God with us. So however much information about Jesus you may know, has this led to a life-transforming encounter with Jesus? Which is more important to you? He longs to encounter you today for the first time or the thousandth time. You just need to ask. Finally, let's come back to the Magi. As I said earlier, they were non-Jewish astrologers from the East. They were experts in interpreting the movement of the stars, and perhaps they had previously encountered some of the Jewish exiles in Babylon and learned from them a little about the expectation for the coming king of the Jews. They clearly don't know all the details, but putting together the little that they do know with the presence of the star propels them into action. Scholars are divided about whether the extra bright star was caused by something natural like the conjunction of several planets in the night sky or something supernatural, the direct action of God. You know, I don't think it matters too much either way. The key thing is that the Magi were open to being guided by God through the movement of the star and they were obedient in setting off on their really long journey. After their encounter with Herod, They continue to follow the star all the way to Bethlehem and finally reach the place where Jesus is. They are overjoyed and fall at his feet in worship. I find it really wonderful that these non-Jews are amongst the first people who worship Jesus. Right from the beginning we see that he didn't just come for the insiders, but for those who might be considered outsiders too. Everyone is welcome to come and worship the newborn king. It points back to the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy. Let me just read three verses from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people's. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Everyone is welcome to come and worship. And as they come, the Magi don't come empty-handed. The gifts that they bring to lay at Jesus' feet are prophetic and tell us quite a lot about who this child Jesus is. They bring gold. I don't know if you can see, I have some chocolate gold coins, slightly fewer of them than I had at the beginning of the 9.30 service. But they bring gold, a gift associated with kingship. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but not just of the Jews, the king of the whole world too. The second gift they bring is frankincense. Again, you might not be able to see that, but do come and have a look at the end and have a smell of it too. It smells really potent. Someone told me at the nine thirty service it smelled of dried paper, which is an interesting description. But this incense was used in the temple by priests as part of their worship. And the job of a priest is to mediate between God and humankind. And Jesus is, in this sense, the greatest priest as he restores the relationship between God and humanity by his death on the cross. And finally, we have myrrh. And again, this is one you might want to come and have a smell of at the end. Someone at the 9.30 told me it smells of herbs, which is quite a good description because this was used to embalm the dead. It reminds us that Jesus was ultimately born to die. And the gifts are prophetic because they point forward to the reason why Jesus was born in the manger in Bethlehem. Christmas is only the beginning of the story, which reaches its climax on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Jesus' death and resurrection. This is why he came to earth. The child in the manger is the man who died on the cross for you and for me and who was raised again conquering death so we might become children of God. The Magi went to great lengths to worship Jesus and brought their most precious gifts to lay at his feet. How will we respond to the amazing love that he shows us, not just in coming to earth, but in dying and rising again to make it possible for us to be in relationship with God? Will we reject his rightful claim to kingship like Herod did? Will we neglect what we know about him, like the Jewish priests and teachers? Or... Will we accept him as our Lord and Saviour and come with the Magi to fall at his feet in worship? The Magi brought costly, precious gifts to Jesus. What gifts can we offer as a response to who he is and what he has done for us? Our worship? Our commitment to spending time with him daily in prayer and reading his words? Our money, our talents to serve as we are able, our whole self, body, mind and spirit, head and heart. True worship is not always easy and may involve sacrifice as it did for the Magi as they set out on their long journey to worship Jesus. What does true worship look like for you? And as we go into 2020, in just a couple of days' time, what resolution could you make to enter more fully into worship of Jesus in the year to come? I'm going to finish by reading a verse from one of my favourite Christmas carols. It reminds us that, however little we may have in material terms, the most valuable gift we can give to Jesus in response to his love for us is our own heart, that is the gift he longs for. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. Amen.